Welcome back, Theologizers. So this week, uh, we're going to be sharing with you part two of our discussion on universalism and David Bentley Hart's uh, argument there too. Um, so we hope you enjoy uh, the second part of the discussion. I know you've been waiting with bated breath. You've been on the edge of your seat. Um, so here's the concluding part of our discussion. Enjoy. Keep the good times rolling, Theologizers. Enjoy it. Well, we could talk a little bit more about the whole um, all, all persons have to be saved because we live in communion, if you had any more thoughts about that. So another way to kind of put the issue is, imagine you're someone among the redeemed, some of the closest people in your life, some of the most identity-forming forming people in your life, say some family members or a spouse, are damned. Then how could you, knowing that they're damned... Right, unless you know God erases your memory, which is obviously problematic, and He talks. And that's about a whole another. That's a whole another issue right. that he's, um, he talks about. Yeah. yeah, and again, this is another thing that where I just facepalm with William Lane Craig suggests this idea that God is just some it just kind of keeps you from realizing that the people you love are suffering. So you're pretty much not yourself. Right. Exactly, you're, you're and I think really that's right. Person. I think that's right. And so he basically says is like so, assuming that you know that's going on. Like, how could you, as someone who exists in communion and gets your fulfillment out of those people who are part of your identity, you're the people you love, how could you experience eternal bliss, eternal beatitude, knowing that there's suffering, yeah. um, torment forever? Yeah. And I think that's a very powerful consideration. So did you have any thoughts on that, Brett? Yeah, I almost think this is the the point where the rubber met meets the road with me, at least in my own personal issue with eternal conscious torment. It's seeing those in, in, in my life, you know, whether it be friends or family members or, or people that I don't know directly, but I just know through their work or, you know, through something well known that they've done, you know, famous people that you, you admire, what have you. You know, these people that really mean a lot to you, which are just hyper examples of, of, in my opinion, what everyone means to everyone. You know what I mean? They just, they, they bring the point home when you use examples of people that are very close to you, very influential, that you love, you know, the loved ones. And you use them you can't as have examples. You can't have one Theo bro saved without the other Theo bro. Exactly. And you think, what would reality look like if hell is eternal conscious torment and these people that are so dear to me that I, I love deeply are going to be in hell, even if I am in heaven? Heaven becomes hell to me if that is the truth. And like you said, ben, like William Lake, Lane Craig and others try to skirt this by saying that we're going to be like, there's going to be like lobotomies performed <laughs> by God as we enter hell. And we're going to be like humanoid, like hollowed out versions of ourselves in heaven. That's like the only way, the only thing that they can say to skirt this issue because we are who, who we're in relationship with. We're connected to everyone else. And I'll tell you this, like I, Oh my goodness. Like, I challenge everyone to think about this. Like there's people that I, I love. There's people that I deeply care for. There's people that I admire that aren't professing Christians at this point in time who have passed away who aren't professing Christians. And I, I can't even fathom eternal separation from these people. And to think about these people 
an e- eternal hell. I don't even know the words to describe it. It's almost like a moral poison flowing through my bloodstream. Well, it feels like part. It feels like part of you would be in hell. It feels I mean, like kind of the point. Yeah, it feels like a death inside of me, and I would venture to say that that's probably what most people would feel if they thought about specific people. Let me just roll it into George McDonald again. And DBH references this passage in George McDonald's Unspoken Sermons again. People, if you've listened to Theo Bros at all and you haven't read George McDonald yet, shame on you. Seriously. Um, if that was the case, and I can say this from the deepest part of me, that if I knew that someone that I love is in hell, I would begin the journey into the depths to save them out of it. I'm not going to stand around the bliss of heaven and let that happen. Um, George McDonald says that's what he would do. That's what most people would do. And in that act, you become more Christ-like. Mm-hmm. You, be, you become more like Jesus. And I think that's a powerful thought and argument for more of a universal salvation. Um, There's a really beautiful uh, representation of that idea in the movie uh, What Dreams May Come with, with Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, it's really sad, too, because God rest his soul, by the way. Yeah. Pray, pray for Robin us. Williams could be a prime example of that, I yeah. think, as we're talking about this. Who doesn't love Robin Williams? Yeah. Who, doesn't, who doesn't see the absolute goodness and joy that that man brought to not only a few people in his life, millions of people around the world? Yeah. Let's just stand, let me stand that for one second. Because Robin Williams is very important to me. That's an example of someone who is a celebrity that I didn't know directly, but had a profound impact on me because yeah. his, his prime time like in his career was when I was coming of age, when I was a kid in the 90s, and he was in some of the most important movies, the most nostalgic movies for me, like Hook, Jumanji, you know, all of these. Like, you have movies. the more profound ones like Patch Adams and Patch uh, Adams, yes. Dead Poet Society. Dead Poet Society, you're right. Or what Dreams May Come that I'm about to talk about. Yeah, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, yeah. I would say Robin Williams did more to bring the fruits of the Spirit into this world than a lot of Christians I know. Was he a professing Christian? Not that I know. Did he commit suicide? Yes, which a lot of Christians look down on because of mental illness. But I think that's a prime example. Robin Williams brought nothing but joy. And I heard he was a very, very gracious person in life, too. So that's just an example of someone who means so much to me. And I would save Robin Williams out of the depths of hell. Give me the in a heartbeat. You know what I mean? So that's just an example. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And what's so poignant about what happens in this movie, What Dreams May Come, the kind of premise is a guy... Uh, dies and goes to the afterlife. He goes to heaven. Um, years later on earth, his his widow that he left behind commits suicide. And she's in the deepest rung of hell. Part of the movie, What Dreams May Come, is... Do you remember this, Brett? Have you seen this movie? I saw a little bit of it once, but I, I don't Oh, remember. man. You, you need to watch it. It's a powerful movie. It, it's, like a, it it's, like, it's like a modern Dante's Inferno, basically. That's just about to ask about... Is it like Dante's Inferno? So yeah, but kind of, it, kind of inversed. Um, So he basically chooses to leave heaven and travel down to hell, to the deepest depths of hell where the suicides are, to find his wife, to bring her back, um, to try to snap herself out of. She's kind of stuck in this like eternal self-delusion. She doesn't really realize she's dead. And he goes down there and he just kind of chooses to, to sit with her and not leave her. 
That's beautiful. In the depths of hell. God, I hope there's there's some way that someone, an angel or Christ himself is doing that, you know, with Robin Williams himself right now. Yes, indeed. Uh, amen. It, isn't that funny how you look at the reality and then the, the movie that he was in? And there's so many people like that. I, you know, there's parents who have lost uh, children to suicide, you know? That is where the rubber hits the road with these, this topic. What parent wouldn't immediately take their place, immediately descend into the depths of hell to save them? No parent would even hesitate. They would be off to the races into the bowels of hell to save their child. Again, it goes to like the brokenness of this world. You know, that's why people commit suicide because people are we're all kind of delusional. There's so much chaos in this world, so much brokenness. God isn't always obvious. You know, it, it's no wonder people go crazy and people get, get, are depressed and people have anxiety and people go into sin to try to numb the pain. Like, that, that's not a crazy idea. Like, we're all in a very broken place. And, uh, you know, God being all loving and all knowing, I, I, I believe he's very aware of that. And, and his grace, I mean, come on, we sing about God's grace every other CMA song on the, on the Christian radio. Yet let's unpack that grace. Let's unpack the depths of that grace, the depths of that love. And when it interacts with doctrines like this, like the doctrine yeah. of hell, I mean, let's, let's, unpack, let's unpack the suitcase a little bit, people. Yeah. You know? So. This is just this is a very speculative idea, but if I were going to play devil's advocate, which I always do. Oh man, okay. <laughs> then this is, I think. So first of all, let me say, I think this is the, the single most compelling argument in favor of universalism is is the communion of persons idea. Yeah. So everything we're talking about now, I think, are by far the strongest arguments for universalism. Because we just know by experience it to be true. Everyone knows that, yeah. yeah. This, the following, I think, again, this is just speculative, I think is the most plausible reply of any reply, rational reply could be given to this part of the argument. First, let me ask a question about God. I guess I'll just see what you think about this, Brett. Do you think that God in his nature, in his essence, not how he just kind of contingently, you know, condescends and expresses himself, Mm-hmm. to human being because obviously you know we can only god condescends and expresses himself in revelation through human concepts and language and emotions but we know those are anthropomorphic mm-hmm. they don't mean <laughs> right so when it says god is angry he's not he's not literally angry in the way that human beings are angry so it's god is metaphor all right. metaphor right it's all just a metaphor to help us understand the infinite god yeah. But so traditionally, Christians have always thought, and I think this is true, although there's some contemporary theologians who would contest this, mm-hmm. but I agree with the traditional view that God in his essence is impassable. And that means that God has no passions. God has no emotions. That's because God doesn't change. Again, even though in the Bible and it's stuff, it, it describes God as if these things are the case, that's God condescending to our ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it's, God has never moved to anything. He's never moved to anger. He's never he's never even moved to compassion. Right? He's compassionate, <laughs> but yeah. he's not he's not moved to compassion. God is passionless. Yeah. So, if that's true, then think about God's relation to the world, the fallen world as it exists. Now, God has infinite love for and compassion on creation. 
from moment to moment, and he will forever. God is hes merciful to everyone. He's constantly pouring out his love on everyone, trying to draw everyone to himself. But is God disturbed in his eternal beatitude and the tr- triune life by the fact that there's sin in the world and people doing evil? Now, God cares about that. Now, I'm not denying that. I'd be really careful about what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. God cares about that. He executes love. He executes, you know, chastisement <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in creation. But God, I don't think it's orthodox or little low orthodox to say that God is somehow disturbed in his intertrinitarian life, that somehow God's perfect self-satisfaction and bliss is thrown off by that. He works against evil, but he's not disturbed by it. Yeah. So keeping that in our minds, now let's try to transfer that concept to the redeemed, in a sense, will be, well, they're deified. They're divinized. I'm using orthodox language here, right? (laughs) Uh, But every Christian agrees to this. You can call it glorification, whatever, right? Peter says that we're becoming partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. And the fathers talk about this, like as we're, the more we're sanctified, the more we come to reflect, you know, by participation, that nature of God. And part of that is becoming passionless. Again, that doesn't mean we, I, we don't yeah. care. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know what you're saying. But we're not moved or disturbed, right, by passion as we participate in the divine nature. If that's true, you probably see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Then you, you might say that even though it's hard for us to comprehend as human beings in our current state, where we're finite, we're not anywhere near fully participating in the Trinitarian life of God, right? Mm-hmm. We're not anywhere near glorification. So it's hard for us to conceive in our current state of being able to feel an infinite compassion, an infinite and never-ending compassion and love towards the other but without being disturbed at all by how that other does or doesn't respond. But it seems like that must be, given Orthodox teaching, that's how that's God's relation to the world. Does that make sense? And it I does. feel like and I feel like that kind of corresponds to I feel like C.S. Lewis portrays something like this in The Great Divorce. So again, which is a book everyone should read. It's my favorite book, definitely the best Christian work of fiction of all time, I think. <laughs> wow. Um, probably agree with you. Very short too. And George MacDonald is his guide in that book. Yes, indeed. But there's a scene in The Great Divorce where, so the kind of premise is people come up from hell in a flying bus, which is a great city, and their relatives who are in heaven come down and they try to convince them um, in the outskirts of heaven to stay in heaven and and not go back down to hell, the the gray city, the gray town. Mm -hmm. And I remember in one of the scenes, the... I think it's a former spouse of a woman who's in heaven. He's come up and he keeps trying to emotionally blackmail her. I don't know if you remember this. He's the tra- tra- uh, tra- tragedian, right? He-, he used to be a you know a theater actor. And so he's all over-exaggerated, but they used to be in love. And he keeps trying to make her feel bad about himself. He's like, and he keeps, he actually says this. He's like, how can you possibly, if you really loved me, I do how that. How could you possibly experience bliss, right, in heaven, knowing that I'm down, you know, in that wretched town, knowing that I'm without you, knowing that I'm all alone? How could you possibly be okay with that? And I thought there was something profound in C.S. Lewis portraying her 
as having this like profound, like she's trying to convince him. She has this infinite love and compassion for him, but she can't be blackmailed by his emotions. She can't be moved. Now she's constantly exerting this mercy, this compassion, this pleading with him, but it does nothing to upset her eternal beatitude. It does nothing to upset her eternal bliss. And I just thought that was a really striking and really profound thing. Right. And the great divorce and reading that scene, it almost, it kind of made sense reading it in that fictional context that it could simultaneously be the case that she has infinite compassion on and love for her former spouse. He's in the great town, but he can't blackmail her into not having the eternal bliss of Christ. She's full of the love of Christ. Yeah. Full of the light of Christ. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I, so I just, so, so that's my kind of thought. I, I think that is the most reasonable. I'm not saying it's conclusive, but I think that is probably the only reasonable way to begin to reply to this issue. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I, I haven't heard anyone else use this reply, but yeah. I, again, I, I think it follows, it, you might think it follows from the doctrine of God, and I think it's very well represented in The Great Divorce. Yeah, I do remember that part of The Great Divorce, and that, that's a good angle to bring up as far as showing that God can be you know, eternally loving, eternally uh, merciful, and willing the good of the other while not being put off or disturbed by someone who's who's lost, but but that at the same time not affecting his compassion for that person. Mm-hmm. But my intuition, w- w- bringing even up that, I think that that can actually be another sort of argument indirectly for universal salvation, that the reason that's the case is because there's this eternal peace and this eternal knowing of this ultimate reconciliation the reason that is that eternal compassion for the lost and that eternal love for the lost is present because eternal compassion and eternal love doesn't lose that sure. eternal pa- compassion eternal love is victorious in it in its nature if that makes sense mm-hmm. that the deprivation of that is by its nature finite. Yeah. And the fullness of that love and that compassion, that undisturbed love and that undisturbed passion, even though people are lost at that point in time, is eternal. Therefore, it has its security in it of itself, in and of its own nature. So I, I'd almost look at that as sort of an indirect argument for, for universal salvation. Um, and, and Ben, let's let's unless you have something more to say on that, I was going to say we could transition to another point that DBH makes in the book, and that is how could anyone eternally resist the love of God? Mm-hmm. And DBH argues that that's impossible because we're created, as so many of the Christian writers and theologians say, and as the Bible says were created for God, mm-hmm. that God is the ultimate good that we're all wired for. And until we have our home within the the good capital G, not these lowercase g's like, you know, money, fame, power, all these like lower things that we search for to get our satisfaction, which we can't ultimately receive satisfaction from, 
because we're all have a, you know, as they all say that God shaped whole inside of each one of us. Therefore, if that is our nature as creatures from this God, that God, the, the Bible makes this clear that God created us for him. That's why we exist. Yep. And that's in our deepest nature, our deepest longings for God. Right. How could anybody eternally resist God if that's the case? Right. Unless unless they were somehow delusional, unless they were somehow insane. How could a person in their right mind with the fullness of revelation of God, how could they resist that for an eternity? DBH argues logically they cannot. Yeah, and I think this is a powerful argument as well. So right, the famous quote from St. Augustine, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. Right? I love that quote. Yeah. Even though um, Augustine whoops hard with a lot of stuff. <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the the idea is that if God, by definition, is the ultimate good, and so kind of the good that all of our actions are implicitly seeking, right, or directed towards, then we can't rationally will against that if we have full knowledge. So this is a kind of view of human freedom and rationality that goes all the way back to Plato or Socrates. Socrates gives this doctrine. It's, it's sometimes called the intellectualist view of human freedom, which is captured in the idea that no one ever knowingly wills evil, or no one ever wills evil yeah. as evil. The only reason that people choose evil is because, like you said, uh, people are, are ignorant. So either they have some disability that's out of their control. So I think we all naturally have you know, what the Greeks called acrasia or moral weakness weakness of the will but that's a condition you know that you might think is out of our control in some cases um, so it's either because of some weakness out of our control or because of some ignorance on our part but the idea is that if we if we are fully rational if we fully knew the reality that god is the only thing that can satisfy us because we were created for him then then the choice to damn oneself would be fundamentally irrational yeah. but then the kicker is that you can't hold someone culpable for a purely irrational choice so he gives the example yeah. and other people i think like thomas talbot has an example is if you saw someone your child just try to throw themselves into a, a physical fire you would know like something is wrong you would yes. you can hold them responsible <laughs> for that like clearly there's some sort of insanity some sort of defect in knowledge that's causing them to do this exactly right? And so if that's true, you, well, you can't hold people eternally responsible for just being in the dark. And so then the idea is, well, then everyone, God has the capacity to bring them out of that, right? And that's probably part of what hell is, and for any universalist perspective, yes, is to get people to finally truly see with clarity the consequences of their exactly. actions and how it's really not in their own good or anyone else's. It's truly self-destructive. Yeah. And George McDonald argues in his unspoken sermon on justice that is justice uh, what's the example he gives early on in the sermon he says like okay so a man steals my watch right the watch is returned to me and the man goes to prison for however many years for stealing my watch do i feel like justice has been served completely in its fullness no what what, what if he's in prison he's unrepentant uh, uh, then especially no you know yeah. i don't feel like justice has been been served but when do I feel like justice has been served? And what is, when do I feel like the fullness of justice has been served? 
that's when the man who stole my watch comes to me and repents for stealing my watch says i am so sorry i see the nature of my ways i should not have stolen that i realize that it created heartache for you that that was a bad thing to do what can i do for you to forgive me i i what can i what can I do to make amends for this? I, I am I am so sorry. I see the, the evil of my ways yeah. for wanting to take something that belonged to you. And in that moment, I say, hey, you're forgiven. It's okay. That is when justice, the fullness of justice has truly been served, right? Yeah. A lesser retributive justice is being served for someone who's just being punished. But it's not until that person realizes the depth of their brokenness, the depth of the the evil that lies within them, the depth of their sin, comes to the full realization of what that means, looks at the horror of it, and then throws themselves at the mercy of God. Until that happens, justice is full full justice has not been served. And George MacDonald argues that I think that's what you're referring to as well, Ben, coming from dbh's book and I, I i would say that's a very strong argument as well on the nature of justice and and how you're not completely there until that that true reconciliation comes to fruition right yeah so this idea is seems like the fundamental notion of justice is to set things right yes and so if that's the idea then how are things really set right just by kind of balancing the scales by inflicting suffering if the process of setting things right is a punishment and is pain yeah and is looking at the horror of what you've done with your life and the the true horror of the sin you've created if that are the, if those are the stepping stones to this ultimate reconciliation then those are necessary and that's why the type of un- brand of universalism that I think me and you, Ben, are, are sympathized with and, and, and I would subscribe to is, is not denying hell, is not denying punishment, is not denying any of that, but all of that are means to right. full justice, full, to ultimate reconciliation. They're not the end in it of themselves. Right. Like it says in Hebrews, God chastises those he loves. Right. Exactly. I have one more objection, and I think this is a a very serious objection, and then you can leave it on a lighter note. <laughs> Perfect so, way to end it, Ben. Yeah, go ahead. And other people have noted this as well. I actually encourage people to look in the Theo blogosphere. There's been a lot of reviews of the book and kind of back and forth about Hart's arguments and universalism recently. Um, a really great one to look at is called Eclectic Orthodoxy. He's been hosting a lot of different reviews of DBH's book from different perspectives. So other people have made this kind of argument, but it occurred to me kind of independently as well is it connects with this rationality thing. The argument would be if you make this rationality based argument, you're just kind of swapping one mystery for another, or you're getting rid of one problem and creating another for yourself. Because if people can't rationally choose against the good, then there's this deeper question of how do you explain how evil entered the world at all? How do, how do you explain how evil entered the world in the first place? So the kind of paradigmatic example would be, and I think every traditional Christian has to accept something like this, the first fall was the fall of angels. Angels, right, the tradition teaches us, had a they existed, right, with a perfect 
you know, knowledge of God to the degree that they can have it, right? And communion with God. But then as it says in Revelation, a third of them rebelled and fell. Now the question is, how how was that possible? If they had a full knowledge of God as the good, then how is it logically possible that they could have fallen? And then you could ask the same thing about human beings. Now you could say, and I think this is more plausible, that you know, whatever the fall represents in human history, that human beings had communion with God, but they didn't, ha- they didn't have perfect knowledge of God. I-, I take the kind of Irenaeus kind of view of this, that God created men kind of in uh, moral infancy and wanted them to grow. So he wanted them to eat of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil eventually. Yeah. Th- the sin was that they reached out before they matured <laughs> on their own. They didn't do it on God's terms. But then you have this question, but on this view of freedom, well, how could God have, how are human beings morally responsible right, for the fall at all if they were created with less than perfect knowledge? Or what purpose would God have had for doing that if you can only freely choose something once you have perfect knowledge? So, so I think this is a really deep issue. So it seems like in, in order to get the ending right for universalism, you have to have a certain view of human rationality and human freedom that it solves that issue, but it creates a, a lump in another side of the carpet, which is the beginning. How do you explain the fall of angels and human beings on this view of human freedom? I think that's a deep issue. Yeah, I, I can sympathize with that. Does the Bible specifically say that angels had full knowledge of God? I know they're at a higher level of existence than us human beings, but well, no Bible one has full knowledge of God. I, I think it, well, full, re- I, absolute, full revelation. You know yeah. what I mean? Does the Bible specify that? Uh, no, but it seems to be implied that the good angels, you know, are in some sense, at least after the initial rebellion, are kind of solidified in their goodness. They're worshiping God continually. Yeah. Um, they only serve God. Um, but again, even if you say that God created them with less than perfect knowledge, then again, you have this issue. Yeah. Well, well, wh- why did he ever create <laughs> any beings with less than perfect knowledge of himself, given yeah. that given that it would not have violated their freedom to do so on this view of freedom? So I, it, I know what you're saying. So it kind of makes the, the problem of evil actually more intractable it, the more you dig your heels into this view of rationality and human freedom. Yeah, this particular argument from rationality, human yeah. freedom of universalism. Yeah. There, there are yes. many more arguments that were made in the book, but uh, yes. yeah, on this particular argument, I totally get get what you're saying. I, I guess the the only response that I have off the top of my head now to that would be viewing creation, e- even the the creation of the angelic realm, and, and how that is being played out, and you know how the history of our universe is being played out as a sort of piece of art you look at the story aspect of the world the the story god is telling the ark um which again coincides with the angelic realm and thinking there has to be some reason that god allowed us to make that choice to rebel to fall initially but that not being the final word Mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying based on this view. Why would God not just create us from the beginning with this perfect view of him if it could have saved all the heartache and saved you know, the possibility of people rejecting him and falling away and, and mm-hmm. this sort of potentiality for a hell for people? 
why wouldn't God just start uh, giving us that fullness? Why would he, why does he wait? And why would he wait until the end of the story, mm-hmm. the end of creation to give us that? And I guess I'm not saying this is a perfect answer, but, but my mind goes to his story and the arc of growth for creation for every individual soul and how somehow that freedom that he's implant, that free will that he's implanted in us and implanted in the angels there's room with this tapestry, with this story, for us to reject that at certain points within this story that God's telling, while keeping intact the end of the story being that full revelation of God and that reconciliation. Not saying that's a perfect response, but it kind of goes back to the kind of the bittersweetness of the world and how God brings beauty from ashes and why do the ashes have to be, be there for the beauty? Why can't it just be beauty? But I think there's like the mysterious play of light and dark and the process of growth and the process of moving toward the story, the process of maturing that eventually leads into a more rich fullness and happy ending to the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, I think that's a good uh, response. It's similar to something, and this is this is a. If anyone wants to read a book that, and he he was a universalist, but it's a good book, independent of that conclusion, uh, that explores these issues really well. It's a book by John Hick, the philosopher John Hick. He wrote a book called Evil and the God of Love, and he gives a kind of uh, Aranean story like this that we're talking about now. This evolutionary idea, and I, I think that's a good approach. It's just I think that. It naturally, it's naturally going to lead you to a different kind of view of human freedom or the value yeah. of human freedom than the one that Hart is defending. That's why I was saying it's not a perfect response, yeah. but it's a different angle maybe to come at it. Yeah. Um, so like, th- what's interesting that John Hicks says, sorry, this is the last philosophical thing I'll say, is he actually says the opposite of what Hart would say. And again, they both come to the same conclusion. Hick is also a universalist. But I think you can think about this issue even if you're not a universalist. Hick says that, Actually, in order for us to be free, God has to make his presence not perfectly obvious to us, at least not at first. But freedom is essentially this process. So God, he wants us to become free, almost like to become perfectly free. So in this view of freedom, freedom is not some particular, it's less focused on particular moments of choice. It's more about a process of making incremental choices in a certain direction. And Hick thinks that we can only be free at the end. So freedom is kind of this process of forming your own character progressively in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And you eventually you want to solidify your character such that you're no longer able to sin. But that's only a free end state if you if you got there through a process right, yeah. of more kind of libertarian-like choices. Yeah. But then that kind of that opens the door though to the opposite. So C.S. Lewis says, every day each of us are slowly becoming one or another kind of creature. We're forming our character deeper and deeper into different directions. And it seems like once you have this view of freedom, it's more difficult to see how you can guarantee that everyone will form their character through these incremental choices more and more in the God direction as opposed to the opposite, which is C.S. Lewis describes as kind of almost making ourselves a monster. We progressively dehumanize ourselves and our own character to the point that eventually we become solidified in an evil, unrepentant character. 
yeah um yeah anyway. i can see the i can see the holes in that argument but again dbh presents many different arguments throughout his book i think many of them both ben and i would say are very strong yeah there's a number of them that have philosophical pitfalls and, and holes in them potentially but um, yeah, you know, no one's perfect. Everyone's trying to think out these these issues. I, I think overall, DBH does a pretty darn good job of presenting his arguments in a very clear, concise, rational, articulate way in his his book. Oh, I completely agree. I, I highly recommend the book. I'm just arguing. Because, I mean, no, of position, course, no position is unarguable. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's good that um, we argue because we don't want to just yeah gloss over it because we want to think it's perfect because nothing's perfect. Yeah. But we're all working through these issues right. as, and I think, as believers. I think that's a good note to end on. I think I just want to encourage Christians, whatever your view of hell is, whether you think that the traditional view is just obvious and any other views are heretical or you're a, you know, maybe more progressive universalist and you just think, oh, it's just obvious. God is good. God is less. Everyone's saved. All right. Case closed. <laughs> yeah. I think we just want to emphasize that. These issues are very complex and very serious. Yes. And I think Christians just need to take these issues more seriously and more th and more thoughtfully. And and not only serious intellectually, but serious yes. morally. Yes. And and very serious to the health of our own souls and the health of our relationship with God. There's so many consequences that spring from this, whether we admit that or not. There, there are. Yeah. So it's not only serious in the mind; it's it's deeply serious for our our, our hearts. Yeah, and it's not sinful to engage with that argument with God. God, yeah. God, God gave us the the Psalms and the Lamentations, where half of which are arguing with God, questioning God. I think that can help grow our faith, no matter what conclusion we come to. Don't yeah. think that oh, if I'm pious, then I can't seriously engage with God in these questions. Yeah, agreed. All right. I think that was a good discussion. Um, we both, I think, highly recommend this book. I mean, it's, it's a really good audio book version of it on Audible. Um, it's That All Shall Be Saved, right, Ben? Yeah. yeah. By, by David Bentley Hart. Just came out, I think, sometime last month or the month prior. You know, if you've never thought about the po that, you know, universalism even being a possibility, um, in your Christian walk, and, and you've always thought that it's it's not biblical, that it's 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 heretical. Um, we would argue uh, against that, and uh, I, I would very whatever conclusion you end up coming to, just to expose yourself to different views, and in my opinion, more hopeful views, obviously, yeah. of, of the the end game of of this thing we call existence, this thing we call life, the universe, what's beyond. Um, I would highly recommend this book. Um, and, and another side one, as far as the, if you've never read anything on this, um, I would also recommend uh, George MacDonald's Unspoken Sermon, Justice. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And also yeah. his, his uh, Unspoken Sermon, The Consuming Fire. The Consuming Fire as well, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so those, and then again, Robin Perry's The Evangelical Universalist yeah. is a little more of a citation, you know, scholarly, less polemical. Book yeah. is very, very good, very, very thoughtful, and he's very gracious to his opponents, <laughs> unlike yeah. David Bentley Hart. Yeah, he is. Yeah, um, and I'm glad we have both tones. Yeah, and both. there are other great books out there. Uh, I know, like a standard annihilationist one is Edward Fudge's "The Fire That Consumes," which I haven't read all of, 
Um, I've only read a few pages, but I'm more familiar with Annihilation from other sources. And there are other good traditional books out there. I know there's a book that recently came out I really want to read by a uh, a philosopher of religion called Sinners in the Hands, or, uh, or sorry, it's called Sinners in the Presence of a Loving God. <laughs> So basically, he he's not a Eastern Orthodox, but he, I think he's a Protestant. But he basically is defending the kind of standard Orthodox view that I was describing earlier uh, in more depth in that book, which is that the most plausible concept of hell is eternal torment, but just because of the unveiled presence of God. Yeah. Not because demons are poking you with pitchforks. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I hope this episode's been helpful to anybody who who either has already wrestled with this question or hasn't really thought about it as much. I don't know if it was helpful, but it was definitely helpful. <laughs> I'll be here all week. All right, theologizers. Well, thanks for joining us again. Um, and yeah, we will see you on the flip side. Deuces. This is the Theo Bros Podcast. <laughs>